From MGMA, welcome to the Insights Podcast. I'm Daniel Williams. If you're not going to run it like a business and you're not going to recognize the challenges and the uphill battles that you have to face in the competitive landscape that you now exist, it's going to be a tough road, a very, very tough road. That's Cameron Cox III talking about practices remaining independent. We'll hear more from Cameron later in the show. We'll also talk to Isabel Babay-Cognac and Neil Johnson about merger and acquisition trends and Will Latham about long-term strategic planning. That's all coming up on this episode, all about strategic planning for independent practices. But first, a word from our sponsors. Do the terms patient panel, phase-in period, and quality incentives keep you up at night? Because they sure don't have to. With the right guidance, you can navigate every critical element that seems to never end when it comes to physician and provider compensation. Use 2019 MGMA Data Dive Provider Compensation to ensure you are retaining and attracting the best providers for your organization. Visit mgma.com slash datapod for more information. Medical groups can't successfully move forward unless its leaders develop the long-range strategic plans for identifying where they want to go and how to get there. To talk more about this topic, I'm joined by Will Latham, president of Latham Consulting Group. Will, thanks for joining the podcast. Great to be here. Now, you've used an interesting term in past presentations uh, when describing medical practices, the word chaos. And I have to ask you, what do you mean by that? Well, I think any medical group manager knows that they, they work with a bunch of physicians that are supposed to be working together, but each one of them individually has their own ideas about the direction of the practice. And so if they never come together and reach a, a pretty unified decision on how they're going to move forward, it becomes chaos. No, no one knows what really should be done. People don't know how to focus resources on different type of projects. There's disagreement. There's just, and, and a lot of times there's standstill because in many cases the manager of the group doesn't quite know what to implement and therefore, if they implement something that isn't in line with an individual doctor's mind or a, a few doctors, that can be sort of a career-limiting move. So from my perspective, the, the chaos comes from the fact that they, they haven't taken a day a year or a couple of days a year to sit down together and say, what is it that we want to accomplish together? What key initiatives do we want to go after? What's our plan for the organization? Yeah. So... Let's dig a little bit deeper into that. Um, what is your opinion then about the present state of independent practices? Because there is so much change going on, that whether it's regulatory or just issues within healthcare. So what's going on out there? Well, you know, I mean, there are lots of changes. One of the biggest areas of change over the last few years has to do with the consolidation of, of all of healthcare. Hospitals are merging health plans are merging and there's been a you know a huge flux of medical practices merging into hospital systems or being acquired by private equity and at one point in time a lot of people began to feel like that that's the direction that there weren't going to be independent practices out there they'd all be owned in fact if you go back into the 1990s there was a prediction at one point that there'd be at the end of the day, there'd be five big medical corporate healthcare corporations, and they'd own all hospitals and employ all physicians. Well, of course, that didn't happen. 
And I actually think now we're going to, we're seeing a bit of a turnaround in terms of more independent practices. There's been some changes in reimbursement that don't make it so economically advantageous for hospitals to own physician practices. And so in many parts of the country that has slowed down a good bit. Some of the private equity acquisition of groups hasn't worked out the way that either the people acquired thought it would work out or the investors thought it would work out. So I actually see, I mean, unless there's some sort of enormous change on healthcare reimbursement, for example, going to a single payer plan or something like that, I actually see independent practice being very vibrant and in fact growing as, especially as hospitals begin looking at whether or not they want to retain physician practices as employees. Your specialty is in long-range strategic plans, but that kind of goes against uh, the day-to-day operations because, as you were saying, there is so much chaos out of medical practice. There's so much focus on daily productivity. Um, How do you kind of get the mindset changed so people can develop a long-range strategic plan and, and make that work for them? Well, part of it is actually setting aside time to sit down and discuss a little bit longer range thoughts than typically happens in the monthly meetings. Usually, you know, groups either have a monthly meeting of all the physicians or their, their leadership group gets together. And there's just, there's just so many things to focus on on the day-to-day issue that any thoughts about what might happen next month, next year, five years from now, uh, they, they, there's just not time to, to spend focusing on that because they're just trying to put out fires in today's situation. An, an unfortunate problem of that is, is because many groups have no long-range plan, they, don't, they can't put today's problems in context. They're just they're kind of making decisions willy-nilly and not focusing on, does this lead us to where we said we wanted to go as a group? So part of it is pulling aside and carving out time, and many groups do that through a retreat, a weekend retreat, carving out time to come together with a specific focus of, let's talk a little bit longer about where we want to go. Now, when when I'm thinking about long-range planning, I'm not talking about, typically, about a 10-year plan or a 20-year plan. Some people would like that, but in today's healthcare environment, that's just not realistic. You're looking really at more what, what is the group going to do over the next several years, two or three years? Because there's so much, there has been so much change, so much potential change, that to, to look beyond, at the most five years, but to look beyond a certain point in time is unrealistic in planning process. So I try to, to get groups to kind of focus on what is it you want to accomplish over the next one year, the next three years, the next five years, recognizing that the further you go out, the more the environment might change, the more the situation might change, and you know, you'll know you have to adapt and adjust your plan. And that's one other factor that I think people need to keep in mind, which is when you make a plan, it's not etched in stone. It's not, you know, we do it no matter what happens. You know, you, you do have to get back together at periodic points and sort of revisit the plan and say, are we still on track? But if you have no plan, if you don't know what you're going to do for recruitment, if you don't know what you're going to do for expansion, if you don't know what you're going to do for building facilities, you know, staffing, administration, if you don't have any idea of where you want to go in that regard, once again, I, I, I find many groups to be paralyzed and they don't do anything. They just sort of, they sort of say to themselves, let's wait six months and then everything will be clear. 
And of course, in my experience, six months goes by all the time and things weren't that clear. So many times it's really, you just have to make the plan and make, make the future come true as opposed to waiting for the future to tell you what you should be. Well, Will, thanks so much for sharing these insights with us today. Enjoy being here. I'd love to do it again sometime. If you'd like to hear more of my conversation with Will Latham, check out our other series, Industry Insider, for the full interview. Value-based reimbursement, shrinking margins, and record-high healthcare spending are just some of the factors pushing providers toward mergers and acquisitions. To dive into this topic more, MGMA Senior Editor Craig Weberg has been talking to Isabel Babay-Cognac, partner with McDonald Hopkins LLC, and Neil Johnson, Managing Partner with Lawrence Evans and Company LLC. Well, today in our podcast episode, we're going to be talking about independent medical practices and kind of what some trends are in the industry, what kind of deals are getting done, what options you're seeing the practices are taking advantage of. Um, Isabel and Neil, could you, I know you both work really closely with practices. You know, what kind of trends are you seeing? Uh, Definitely. I mean, we work with uh, the community hospitals as they try to evaluate uh, partnerships, joint ventures and and sales and kind of along uh, with that, uh, the physician groups as uh, historically uh, we've kind of gone through that consolidation of you know, years ago selling to uh, to the hospital systems and some of those didn't uh, quite work out as as well as uh, uh, expected and we're kind of seeing uh, uh, a lot of uh, kind of question marks in terms of independent physicians trying to figure out what to do within the ever changing uh, in environment today. Uh, and so they've got several alternatives uh, with uh, compared to just the the hospital option. Uh, there are several several things that they're thinking about contemplating, and of course, it kind of depends on uh, the specialty, as as you'd mentioned, as well as the geographic uh, and other uh, uh, competitors and referral sources that that could uh, uh, add add to that uh, at least some options to them. But the environment right now, with the amount of capital being uh, a debt and, and equity from private equity that's being raised to focus on their attractiveness to the, the physicians, as well as we get calls from the family offices, and these are uh, uh, individuals with uh, uh, wealth that they start uh, investing into companies, and including physicians that they're looking to uh, make an investment. And some of them have uh, healthcare experience and, and others don't, which uh, kind of, uh, I think a unique investment for those that uh, don't have any healthcare experience and, and looking to partner with doctors to help uh, uh, get them a partial liquidity and, and grow their, their practices. Uh, so definitely a lot of liquidity out there and, and physicians looking for uh, different options. I mean, you mentioned uh, private equity. Uh, you know, what are the what are the specialties that are really being attractive to private equity right now? Well, from what what we've seen, as Isabel said, a lot of the hospital based have been uh, in the last few years uh, focused on uh, uh, you know radiology, ER, uh, in the ophthalmology. Uh, you know, dental's been uh, been an area uh, as well, and and a lot of the uh, non-hospital people like that because it's a lot more cash pay and depending on the model there and even to the extent of that uh, as, as well. 
but from the physician uh, perspective, uh, now we're a lot of attractiveness into other areas, more niche focus, uh, gastro, uh, urology, uh, even now into uh, pain, uh, chiropractic even. Uh, so some of these areas have been less attractive, but uh, fragmented with a lot of independence, uh, different models that uh, investors are going in to try to help help these independents uh, look at alternatives into, into how do we survive, how do we grow, and, and we're seeing some different uh, at least favorable outcomes. Uh, you know, there's complexities with uh, state regulations creating the, uh, which I don't think we necessarily want to touch into, but uh, uh, Isabel's expertise in helping s- set up those structures uh, as you get into different states within the, the management service agreement uh, or DSOs. Um, so I think definitely those, those niche areas that have not been uh, um, focused on um, more recently now are getting, getting attention and, and getting uh, getting the capital attracted to them to want to do uh, do something. So, and if you want, when you look at these types of specialties where we're seeing accelerated trends, they all have uh, some points in common. First, you tend to have geographically they're in areas where you have at least a favorable payer mix, including um, private uh, payers, not just uh, a lot of Medicare and Medicaid, uh, because the payments uh, from the government payers differ by specialty and are not as generous for certain specialties as others. And as we know, based on the predictions and uh, what is in the works from a healthcare standpoint, and uh, when you apply this to the demographics and the increasing number of baby boomers, uh, but uh, we're going to have less dollar per individual there with the government payers. So we focus on the uh, private payers. And then uh, all these practices also have the opportunity to usually employ um, mid-level providers, whether they are physician assistants and nurse practitioners or optometrists, opticians, so that the physicians can also have additional revenue from other providers that work under them or alongside with them. And then uh, something else that these specialties have is the opportunity to have some sort of ancillary business alongside. So for gastroenterology, we might be talking about uh, ambulatory surgical center and procedures there, laboratories related to this. For dermatology, we can have uh, some um, cosmetic work done, whether uh, fully cosmetic and we're talking even retail uh, at that point, but also cosmetic in terms of surgery and cash paying. And uh, in ophthalmology, a lot of opportunities there with uh, practicing surgeries in their own ambulatory surgical centers and also having the mid-level providers, the optometrist, as well as the retail business with uh, lenses and glasses. And that is all adding to that bottom line. And that makes these practices very, very attractive for private equity or consolidation in nice platforms within that same specialty. I think we're seeing less multi-specialty groups forming and more uh, single specialty groups, whether through private equity or within these groups themselves who are seeking consolidation to resist uh, the, the trends out there and, and be better equipped to adapt to the environment. Well, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, the practices that are able to attract higher 
rates or cash-based business uh, definitely would make sense that they would be more attractive to investors. Um, so let's go a little bit deeper into these private equity deals and maybe the uh, what the deals look like a little bit. So, you know, what does a private equity deal entail? Uh, is it part ownership of the practice? You know, um, and if so, what do what what do the investors expect back as far as control over the practices? Um, what do the practices use the capital for? Like, can you talk about some of that kind of the the, the next level of of uh, of equity um, investment in, in the deal? And that's and that's something that there's a lot of maybe misinformation with uh, physicians uh, about what they're hearing. But typically, uh, a, a financial buyer, as we call it, the private equity groups or family offices, uh, they they typically want to have a diversified model base that they can scale. You know, they're they're looking to build the organization, make investments into a, a management team if there's not one there already, uh, make investments into mid-level management uh, and organizational structure, policies, procedures, uh, technology, which which. Uh, continues to be a uh, important part of, you know, financial reporting, clinical reporting, and uh, revenue cycle to to build a bill and collect for that, uh, and and uh, communicate uh, uh, maybe within multiple uh, office settings. And so as we uh, w we see that scale from a size perspective, you know, uh, that that physician uh, comp as typically concerned about, well, I'm going to have to cut my, my normal salary distributions. Uh, in a lot of cases, yes, uh, there's expectation. But of course, the, the buyer doesn't want an unhappy uh, partner that continues to have to go to work every day. So it's that uh, ultimately uh, salary uh, uh, kind of earn back that uh, they need to get into. So all the partners need to be happy with the setup and, and the financial partner. In a lot of cases, uh, everybody sees it as it, it's more of a, what are we going to do together so that we can uh, reduce the cost of care and provide better outcomes and still be able to make a profit as a stronger organization and maybe be able to, as we see a, a financial buyer coming in, typically they, they like to see uh, net profits after paying the physicians of at least $2 million, but but more so uh, uh, 5 million or more. And that's so that they can have a, a diversified, uh, stable organization and typically put some leverage on the business as well as, as part of the transaction. Uh, they do like control, typically the 51% or more uh, of the equity where they're, they're buying out the partners. To, uh, typically, you'll get a, a, a check. Uh, and then maybe a reinvestment of the capital into the business again for those other acquisitions or uh, building out the management team and, and technology. But uh, financial control and, and working with the, the physicians, uh, usually in alignment of the strategy and growth, uh, doesn't necessarily mean uh, operating control. There's a lot of different ways that they can uh, work to, to put models together. Uh, there's several different uh, organizational models that work. And so, you know, culturally, you need to align with uh, the financial partner that you're moving in, in the same direction because it's like a marriage and you know, you're going to have to work together and there's going to be problems uh, uh, as, as you go through that. Uh, but 
at the end of the day, the financial buyer, they are looking for return. And typically uh, within time period of that uh, five to seven, seven years, uh, some of the family offices, they don't necessarily have a timeline. They can uh, remain in there as a partner. But I think everybody in, in general uh, that we see, you know, they want to grow. They want to continue to build, diversify, and uh, in theory, build, uh, build their equity wealth uh, for everybody in, involved. So you mentioned uh, something that that's really helpful. Thank you for sharing that, Neil. You mentioned uh, at the very beginning we were starting to talk about um, investors who may not have expertise in 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 healthcare, and I, that's an interesting uh, hearing. Just what you said there about uh, investors wanting some of that control and fifty one percent interest and and you know influence in the management structure. Um, does that change with people who are not uh, well versed in healthcare management? What does that look like? Uh, it, it can be uh, again a, a cultural challenge, and we call it uh, there's smart money and dumb money, and so there's different advantages with each one. And so someone that doesn't understand the industry doesn't understand what the physician's dealing with. Uh, there's a the education curve. Um, but there's there's some advantages to it. So as the group uh, tries to outline what they're trying to accomplish, whether it's you know buying out some retiring physicians, making the investment, uh, uh, or looking to to accomplish uh, something that they can't do on their own to remain more independent, um, you know having that right partner uh, and and someone with maybe uh, expertise and knowledge of, of the sector can be important, uh, or maybe they bring in some other skill sets that uh, are valuable. And there is a little bit of a learning curve, but you got to keep in mind if they're not as knowledgeable, it uh, they may be trying to help uh, steer the steer the organization uh, a little differently, and that might cause some some tension with the uh, organization. So, uh, but we are definitely seeing a lot of interest uh, uh, with non uh, uh, non healthcare funds, uh, as as again as well as uh, family offices that are looking to make investments and, and diversify. And Craig, I would like to add that uh, even though these groups uh, may not have a healthcare experience, first they all have the goal to be successful. But I think physicians and physician practices generally have to get more accustomed, uh, at, accustomed at getting uh, participants in this industry that are coming from other industries. Because first, the industry still is attractive, but it's also very complex. And uh, the demands that the practices have today, even just in terms of uh, in IT and interoperability, et cetera, are driving outsiders to the industry for their expertise in these specific fields. So um, we're seeing already uh, this, you know, with Amazon and uh, CVS investing heavily, but there are going to be more and more uh, different uh, types of providers out there, and they're not all going to be driven by physicians. So that's inevitable in this system. In spite of uh, legal barriers, for example, in certain states where we still have the prohibition on the corporate practice of medicine, this is inevitable at this stage. So you talked about, again, I, I went back to, um, you had mentioned uh, practices divorcing from hospitals and, you know, over the last 25 years, there's been 
various levels of integration and disintegration um, from all the the readings that I've done, you know, there needs to be work that's done up front to make sure there's a cultural and strategic fit between uh, an investor, what, whoever that investor is, and a practice. Um, have the private equity deals dealt with that in a better way than the traditional hospital physician partnerships? Have you seen them be more successful? Are they more, is there more flexibility with the, um, private equity firms rather than kind of the rigidness of a hospital. Does that make sense what I'm talking about? Are they better partners than hospitals? Well, I think a lot uh, is yet to be seen as this uh, plays out. I mean, private equity has been involved with physicians uh, uh, for years, but just ever more present and a lot more capital. And so is this time, uh, as we hear, different uh, than, than the kind of roll-ups of the past with the hospitals? Uh, you know, the, the private equity funds and the management teams, you know, think, uh, you know, definitely a little different. There's more uh, uh, alignment of incentives uh, and hopefully building a, a better mousetrap to be uh, providing better uh, quality of care uh, within uh, the, the, the business model at a lower, uh, lower cost, uh, you know, with technology, with different models that, that we're seeing today and, and even different partnerships uh, to stay uh, involved with uh, areas of, of need, whether it's, um, you know, behavioral health, which is a, uh, an area across and crossing with primary care and others, whether it's uh, partnerships with uh, ACOs, with Medicare Advantage plans. Uh, we're definitely seeing uh, a lot of different ways to kind of diversified ad revenue and again provide quality service to the patients. Craig, another thing that you have with private equity is that geography is almost, it's not meaningless, but uh, going the private equity route really allows you to have additional and a large number of options uh, that you may not have with your local or um, you know state-based hospital system that you're dealing with. Uh, in addition, hospitals are um, today, they're being forced out of a provider-based billing by Medicare. Therefore, their incentives to try to integrate additional practices are decreasing fast and not able to uh, bill as many services on a provider-based basis, even uh, for their own network. And we know that is one of the goals that CMS has stated is uh, to make sure that uh, not all these additional costs are passed on to the Medicare and Medicaid beneficiaries. That's a really good point. Uh, I know that that provider-based billing and the referral um, access and the downstream revenue are all really important pieces and uh, that eliminates some of that, of the tension created there or the with the, with the private equity and not having that geographic um, boundary. So you mentioned, Neil, the uh, end goal of many private equity is to have a, a certain margin that they're hitting. You know, what are the longer range goals of these private equity firms? Are they to hold on to them in perpetuity or are they looking to, you know, grow them and sell them or does it really, does it matter deal by deal or group by group? Well, again, private equity, they raise capital from investors. A lot of these investors are pension funds, 
uh, individual in, investors, uh, and they ultimately have a, a, a an end uh, that they need to re, re you know re, return that capital to the investors. So unfortunately, you know they've got to look at an exit option, and that option you know could be several several different uh, directions. You know, could be. Uh, to another private equity investors, it could be uh, maybe to a strategic buyer. You know, we're seeing some of the public companies uh, making acquisitions. Uh, it could be to uh, into an ESOP uh, where the physicians uh, buy it out on a leverage basis. Uh, so there's several different options that you know come available, and of course, uh, the, the larger, more diversified, uh, you know, there's more capital and more options for them. And so I think everybody's in alignment as, as long as they can remain, uh, remain independent, have diversification, and again, providing that, that quality of care. Uh, I think the next partner that they ultimately need to hand it off to, uh, the, the physicians that uh, most likely will be remaining on uh, for a period of time uh, can feel comfortable that, uh, you know, that mission will ultimately uh, continue. Isabel and Neil, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. You too. Appreciate okay. it. Thanks thank so you. much. Bye-bye. Today, less than half of physicians are independent. While that might be the trend within healthcare, many practices do want to remain privately owned. Our next guest, Cameron Cox III, says that if you're going to remain independent, you need to change your mindset and run your practice like a business. Cameron, thanks for joining us today. Now, as you know, there's an enormous amount of activity, mergers, acquisitions, consolidation taking place in the medical practice space, but you seem very bullish about practices staying independent. Why is that? I think that they have the opportunity because if nothing else, if you think about it logically in the world of business, one of the things that, that physician, particularly any physician practice, be it independent or non-independent, doesn't really matter the very first thing that you think about is you actually have the relationship. That's why I'm bullish. I'm bullish from a business standpoint is we actually have the opportunity because we actually have control of the upstream product, so to speak, the patient. And that's the product for health insurance companies, the product for the uh, health systems. It doesn't matter. Ultimately, to deliver health care, you need a person. We have them. We have the people. I'm bullish on it because of the fact that what we have to do, in my opinion, is still run it much more like a business than we have in the past. You can't just rely on the historical relationship that I think a lot of providers in the past were able to do because now the competition is no longer landlocked in just your community. A lot of doctors, when they first started out, the only competition may have been another doctor down the street. Today, the competition exists on, those, on the corners with Walmart in the health system via telemedicine, via Cleveland Clinic using telemedicine across the, across the country, you no longer just have to be able to compete with just that relationship with the other provider in town. So you're going to have to run it like a business. But it doesn't preclude us from understanding that we still have the ultimate piece of this, which is the patient. Yeah. Now, you're making the point that practices can stay independent, but there have to be challenges. I mean, there is such change going on in the industry. There's also so much activity going on. So what are the biggest challenges then to staying independent? I think first of all is understanding the 
some of the simple pieces and logistics of business. Like, first of all, just focusing on one side of an equation of revenue and not expenses or expenses and not revenue, that's a flaw. You know, most businesses out there, the very first number that you look at is actually a profit margin. You actually try to figure that out. The challenges in healthcare that we actually face today that we didn't necessarily face in the 80s and even some in the 90s is that we are have we have very 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 limited if any control over our revenue except from the per- perspective of the volume we have very little control of the price piece of the revenue so we have to focus on the volume and understanding the impacts of those is also a very Im- important component and that includes other terms such as opportunity cost if i have to see x number of these patients versus y number of these patients what is my opportunity cost differential my point is we have to run it like a business. We can't just sit back and say, I went to med school and therefore I am allowed to practice. It's not an entitlement provision, not at all. Being an MD gives you a skill that a lot of people don't have. Putting that skill in place with a business, that's going to be the proper protocol going forward. It's not You're not gonna be able to just come out, hang a shingle up and say, let's go. Unless you're very, very, very niche. And even in that capacity, it's going to be very challenging. Because in that capacity, you're going to actually be focused on low or high supply, excuse me, high demand, low supply, probably in that scenario. If you're just a general type of physician, and again, no disrespect to any of the specialties, we have to understand the portion of our practices that are commodity-based versus relationship-based. Because some of the things that we do as physicians, or not me, I don't, but in our practices, some of the things that we do in our practices They are very commodity. And when we first begin to understand that and accept that, then we can begin to change our business culture a little bit to meet the needs of the patient. Um, I recently was talking to a physician and they're opening up a new practice. And it was interesting because the challenge of that practice is going to be a lot of times in business, the very first thing you say when someone, a consumer or a patient or whatever consumer particularly ask you, do you do X? A good business person says yes, and then you figure it out. Yeah, and you had mentioned something interesting there. You were saying that that really a practice, if they're going to stay independent, they own their business. So they have to have the mindset of running a business, not just seeing patients, not just having a, a flow there, but actually owning and running a business. So what are some of the basic best practices then of effectively running a practice as a business? Sure. One of the things I think is actually understanding your market and what does your patient slash consumer slash customer want. I tend to use the word customer more than I do patient or consumer. And a lot of physician practices inherently get upset about that, Um, particularly those who have been in it for a long time. It doesn't matter. At the end of the day, because of how the challenges and the changes of our health care landscape have come about, these are more and more becoming customers. So I think understanding what the customer wants, that's imperative. Um, just to give you just a quick side story, the same group was telling me that they did not feel comfortable providing PA services to their patients because they did not believe that, that was quality medicine. My question back to them was, what does the customer think? Not what you think. What does the customer think? Now, it might be that you can find a middle ground between those two, but if you are always putting what you think is the appropriate model in place, 
you're never listening to the voice of the customer. That's the very first thing I think that we have to do. We have to understand. If we sit back, for example, and say telemedicine is never going to exist, you can't provide good quality care on telehealth. That is not fair. It's a it's a it's a crazy statement to say something like that of that magnitude and completely shut that out. It may end up being the right answer down the road, but during the course of this, there are so many patients, and with the continuation and growth of the telemedicine industry, it's getting a little bit more challenging to say that that's a truism. So one of the first things a lot of business owners do is you don't necessarily bestow what you think on the customer. What you should be looking at is both sides. What is my value system? How does it line up with what my customers want? And can we find those middle grounds between the two? I also think that understanding the analytics of it, not just looking at your end-of-month reports and saying, okay, what were my charges this month, what were my payments, and what were my adjustments? That is what I see across the board so many times. It's the only three things that people look at. That doesn't make any sense. We should be using our analytics and our data a lot more to forecast, to budget, to do things that a business would do, not just what a practice does. What's the best way then to understand what your patients, your slash customers want? Are there certain surveys? Is it anecdotal information of talking to them when they come in? What is the way to get inside their minds to really understand what they're looking for? I think it's, it's a couple of different things. I mean, think about, I don't know if you've ever been involved in this, but I actually was solicited one time to be a uh, secret shopper. Um, and we were testing a product and then we were asked about that product afterwards. Um, and I thought it was intriguing because they were taking that and they were actually, it was very, and this was probably, what I don't know, even a, a decade or more or so ago. So it was very subjective. It wasn't that objective. It was just subjective. And I thought it was fascinating because, again, again we experienced it. Um, I think the best way to do it is, is partly anecdotal, anecdotal, and then there's also other elements of simply read. You know, if nothing else, where we are currently, where we all reside right now is we are in the information age. That's where we are. We have more information at our fingertips than we have ever been exposed to before. So just soliciting that information, reading, researching, learning about the different generational aspects that we're actually encompassing now, but also talk to your patients. Ask people. We know. That's the, that's the thing. that we, the, the, the world that we live in today, particularly with social media and how quickly people can respond you know, via Twitter, via Facebook, whatever, an Instagram account, whatever the case may be, how quickly and then how quickly we respond and adapt accordingly. That's the difference, you know, as opposed to a lot of times a really good business person is not going to, I guess, I guess the old adage of the customer is always right still has a lot of merit. Even in today's age, it has a lot of merit. And when you begin thinking that way, um, it just sort of changes. It sort of changes how you run your business. So, so I think in the to follow up, I think it's anecdotal, but I also think it's, you know, you educate yourself. You make yourself motivated to go out there and get that information, research it, learn it, see what others are doing. Watch your competition mess up, you know? I mean, look at the negative reviews of one of your competitions or look at the positive reviews, but go solicit the information to understand what is it that people are like, what do they enjoy? Also, think about what other industries enjoy. I think as business owners, what you do is you actually look at other industries and actually how they're adapting to customer needs, and we learn from that as well. We are not 
we are not independent. We're not in a bubble. We don't exist on our own. Many of the problems that we face, particularly from a business standpoint, others have faced as well. And we should learn and adapt that. Think of other industries like the banking industry or one of the things I recently have thought about is actually how Enterprise Rent-A-Cars now does everything from subscription service to you can buy a car, we'll bring you a car. Think about that just from a standpoint of this is a company that just started out as a rental company. Um, same thing in our space in healthcare. We can't be myopic and suggest that only our space understands our problems. It's just not true. Now, you were mentioning data analytics earlier and other uh statistics that someone can study uh, what what are the best ways they can do that to measure themselves to see if they're making progress to stay independent or if, if they aren't making progress and where they need to step up their game yes yeah, so the the first place in all this is actually using some uh, KPI you know using indicators or comparative uh, data is essential start inside the house first and then you know, extract it and go further out. You know, some of the some of the software vendors now actually have data that they actually will share in a blinded fashion. MGMA is an excellent source, obviously, too, to to use some KPI. But figure out first of all who you're racing and how fast the speed limit is. I mean, that's one of the crazy things I kind of joke with people about. But <clears throat> you have no idea how hard to press the pedal if you don't know what the speed limit is. So if you don't know where you're trying to get to or, or also how fast you can do it, then it's sort of pointless. So understanding those metrics is actually key to any successful business. Some of the simplicity of it, too, is actually, to me, somewhat fascinating. Understanding what is the highest amount you could possibly do. Um, many of, of us as managers and administrators, we probably have forgotten some of our key courses uh, in college. But there are some simple, simple tools uh, and algorithms to actually tell us what is the maximum capacity we could do as a provider. And those are the little simple things. There's actually, and I, I did a presentation for MGMA last year on this subject matter. We didn't go into a whole lot of depth, but there's a couple of programs within, within Excel called Problem Solver that, that actually can help us maximize some of our profitability portions with appropriate staffing or appropriate distribution of various procedures or CPT codes, understanding what do we want to do to maximize either our profit or to maximize or, excuse me, optimize our, or minimize, excuse me, minimize our expenses. Like how many people do we actually have to have at the front desk based on the number of providers we have in the office each day? I could probably, you know, state this as a pretty close statement of fact that most practices probably have the same number of people at the front desk, quote, working the front desk every day, but the number of providers probably varies, I bet, anywhere from 100 to 200% differential between the number of providers working each day. But, but, but groups don't make any changes. That's, that's an example of using analytics to properly run your business. And I, the, one of the analogies I use whenever I make this statement is think about how many registers are open at Christmas at Walmart versus how many registers are open today on June 3rd at 1.30 p.m. Mm -hmm. I can promise you there's going to be a vast differential because they're running it like a business. Right. Now, we've been discussing staying independent, but do you have a, an example of a practice that's implemented these strategies that's really changed their mindset that I'm running a business now and what that looks like in practice? 
Actually, um, interestingly enough, and it's sort of a, I guess, a case study, but it's a group that I work with, started working with a couple of years ago. And when I first got on the scene with them, they had no electronic medical record. They had uh, a manager who'd been there and kind of grew on, grew up through the ranks and been there for a long time. They really hadn't invested a lot in their space. They hadn't invested a lot in their technology. And it was a hard discussion. Um, the discussion centered around spending money is not necessarily simply viewed as an expense. That was the first conversation we had to overcome. Spending money sometimes in a business, in fact, arguably, it should be every time in a business should be seen as an investment. That's that was the first thing that we actually had to overcome. Um, kind of joyfully, this they kind of bought into a lot of these discussions, a lot of these points. We updated the website tremendously. This is a group that actually is a type of specialty that really is patient focused. Updated the website. They moved to a new space. They had been in the same space for 30 years. Um, they actually adapted to a new EMR. Um, it helped them in all kinds of, of uh, mechanisms from operations to patient engagement, et cetera. Um, they hired two new physicians. They actually changed the leadership as well. Um, they started running the board meetings a little bit more like board meetings and began to develop government platforms as opposed to trying to manage from the board level. They did a lot of this. And one of the cool parts about this is the, is the the proof was in the pudding. The profit margin is exactly the same where it was before, if not higher, but the infrastructure, the investment, all of that stuff, now everything is up to speed. And they have new stuff in place, if you will. They have new space, it's renovated, it's fresh. Patients love it. There's a lot of positive in the community about it. So yeah, I have seen it and it's been unbelievable. And it really has truly helped them from a standpoint of future recruitment as well for physicians who are coming into the community um, now people want to be a part of them and that's another part of this is actually you have to build something that people want to be a part of not only for future partners but also patients now in your presentations you've talked about motivation as being kind of a final piece of the puzzle here what do you mean by that what what is how does motivation i would think just staying afloat and and keeping your business uh on the right side of things would be motivation enough but what do you mean by motivation here actually saying that is is true that what you just said i think is very true motivation is what it is that you hope to accomplish that is your motivation so a lot of times i'll sit down and i'll ask doctors or ask business owners if you have the practices what's your motivation what do you want to do do you want to stay independent and if you do what are you willing to do to get there? That's what, it, that's what it comes down to. Sometimes motivation is simply, I don't need to be a, a legacy. My motivation at this point is simply to get by until X number of period. Like if it's a one or two doctor practice and most, most, both of the physicians are kind of close to retirement age, their motivation may be just kind of cruising along. But there are other people who actually have motivation where I want to be successful. There are some who say, I want to be national. I want to be statewide. I just want to be local. You have to answer that question first. What motivates you? What do you want to do? Because that's what it still comes down to. Like if you think that that owning your own business is hard, I mean, it is an absolutely hard thing at this point. There's nothing, um, there's nothing in this that's a guarantee. I think coming out of med school 
20 plus years ago, there was probably a lot of guarantees through success. But I think we're going to get to a point eventually where just coming out and just doing whatever it is that you want to do is not going to be enough if your motivation, for example, is financial success. I think one of the challenges, and I give you a good example that's kind of on the flip side, honestly, is a lot of times now we're seeing kind of dual dual MD families come into a community. So where there's a spouse, you know, the both spouses are, are both MDs. Well, if the combined revenue of those two to their family is a half a million dollars, you may not have the same motivation that the people had in the past when it was just one person in the family who was doing the work. You see what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. So it gets a little bit more challenging, I think, as we kind of go forward with what is your motivation? You know, what's moving you? What what do you want to do every day? And do, is this something that you want to do? Do you want to be a business owner? Because if you don't want to be a business owner, there really is no reason to own a practice. Not in my opinion. Because it's, if, it's, if you're not going to run it like a business and you're not going to recognize the challenges and the uphill battles that you have to face in the competitive landscape that you now exist, it's going to be a tough road, a very, very tough road. Well, Cameron, thanks so much for these insights. Yep, my pleasure. I very much enjoyed it. Well, that concludes our episode on strategic planning for independent practices. Thanks to our guests, Cameron Cox III, Will Latham, Neil Johnson, and Isabel Babay-Cognac. If you like the show, please rate and review it wherever you get your podcast. We would love to hear from listeners about the show. Email us at podcast at mgma.com. MGMA Insights is presented by Craig Weberg, Declan McGee, and I'm Daniel Williams. Thanks for listening.